Welcome to episode 147 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. What are the chances that our basement would flood not once, but twice in just a few weeks? Yes, twice, and for completely different reasons, but I'm jumping ahead. Let me first say that we knew there was a chance this could happen and diligently put everything on shelves and in plastic tubs. We spent hours arranging everything so it would be safe, just in case. And then life continued for a couple of months and we stopped being so diligent. We started to bring down cardboard boxes filled with items that needed to be sorted into those plastic tubs. Those cardboard boxes were sometimes carefully placed on top of a plastic tub and other times left in the middle of the floor so we'd remember to sort the items. And that's the lesson in all of this. Having a good system is only useful if you always use it. Slipping up and being a bit careless opened us up to a greater risk of our belongings being ruined. Fortunately, we managed to salvage everything that got wet and 98% of our belongings were up off the floor as we had planned. We're going back to being diligent and hope to keep it up this time because you really never know when your systems are going to be tested. I mean, that last 2% might be ruined despite having a great system in place. Your challenge for this week, are you diligently following the systems you put in place to keep you and your worldly possessions safe? Are you routinely backing up your computer? Are the photos on your phone being backed up to the cloud automatically? Are you using unique passwords for every site online and saving them in a password manager, for example, LastPass? Whatever it is that you put in place, let my basement flood remind you to keep it up. Don't wait for your own system test. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest believes we are all connected and can achieve more significant results when we learn how to build relationships with all people, regardless of their packaging. She is a diversity and inclusion strategist who specializes in helping organizations make diversity and inclusion a competitive advantage. She's the author of two books and was included among the top 100 global thought leaders on diversity and inclusion by the Society of Human Resource Management, SHRM. She is a past president of the Global Speakers Federation and was recently inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame. She has presented to audiences on six continents and in 37 countries, plus in the middle of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Please join me in welcoming Lenora Billings-Harris. Hi, Robbie. Thank you so much. And let me answer the question most people are wondering right away, which is the middle of the Atlantic and Pacific. Yes, I was on a ship. <laughs> as a guest lecturer. And I also have spoken in Fiji, Hawaii, and Bermuda, which also fit. I love it. I love it. Not everyone can say that. So, Lorna, thank you so much for joining me from your office in Greensboro, North Carolina. And as, as you know, this is a show about community building and relationships, but the context is leadership. And we, we want to know how people uh, think about leadership and, and relationships. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, I, I realized I had the skills to lead when I was in elementary school, actually. Um, but I'll, I'll start with what I now see are the elements and the components of leadership. I, I believe that uh, 
truly effective leaders have a vision uh, and a clarity of, of outcomes. So they not only have the vision, but they have some sense of what they want that outcome to be in the way they lead an organization or team. They inspire others uh, primarily because of how they carry themselves. They model the behavior they would like other people uh, to also um, emulate. They are able to direct, guide, and listen. And I believe those three go together because some leaders are just directive. They're just telling people what to do. Uh, But there are times when you want to guide the team. And in order to guide, you really have to be able to listen and especially listen to differing points of view, what I call diversity of thought. Then I think, again, really effective, phenomenal leaders have a spirit of service. They don't care who gets the credit for the outcomes. They're really about serving others and serving the organization. Leaders clearly have to be risk takers because that, I think, is the difference between a leader and a manager. The leader is the one that will take those risks in order to achieve uh, the outcomes. And lastly, a sense of humility, which again goes back to not particularly caring who gets the credit. Um, And when they achieve, they also always see that they achieve because they stood on the shoulders of others who came before them. Mm, those are great. I, the direct guide, listen, I just want to underscore that because that, that's a great, easy takeaway to remember. And I also really appreciate that piece about being a risk taker because leaders are often going into the unknown, but they also know others are following them. So the risk isn't just for themselves, but also for, their, for the people following behind. Um, and the humility, the st- who you're you know, standing on the shoulders of those who came before you. Great. I mean, really expansive understanding of what a leader is. But you mentioned <clears throat> that you first realized this in elementary school. So I have to hear a little of the story. Like, I love when guests go back, you know, sometimes they just go back to like, you know, business school, but you went all the way back there. So tell us, what were you like in elementary school, Lenora? Well, I... I, um, I was Miss Goody Two-Shoes, actually. I mean, I really didn't break rules. I, I followed what I was told to do. Uh, however, somehow other students would come to me when something important needed to be taken to the teacher or to the principal. And for some reason, they always thought I would be the one to do it. What I have learned about my my leadership, my behavior, um, because it has repeated itself both in high school and then in college and certainly, you know, my adult life, is that I had and have the ability to talk to people different than me. So when I was very young, you know, obviously the principal would be much older than me. I had the ability to talk to people different than me, but in a way they could hear what I was saying. I mean, really hear, so that they understood whatever the issue was. And I came to them from a place of partnership, so to speak. Now, I'm doing this in retrospect. Obviously, I didn't realize all of that at the time. But I came to them to try to solve a problem, but not with blame and shame. You know, really, here's what the situation is. Here's how we see it. How can we resolve it from from that perspective? So I presume that must be somehow how other kids... um, thought that I would be the best person to, to take it forward. Either, either that or they really didn't like me and wanted to set me up. I'm not sure which. <laughs> I love this because um, it's, a, it's the skill that you have to talk to other people. And clearly, 
uh, and people that are not like you, I think is the way you, you put it. Um, the speaking across differences, communicating across differences, partnering, coming to them with a partnership mentality. You know, how are we going to work on this together? <clears throat> Maybe you didn't understand all of that when you were 10, <laughs> but clearly you've developed it as an adult and as a part of your profession. I mean, your focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, really, I think you can see the origins of that work. Even then, your ability to connect and communicate and to be seen as a leader. But were there people that you were looking up to that inspired you, um, that were themselves leaders in your community that you thought, well, I want to be like that one day? Um, in a couple of ways. So in my very early years, from age two to 10, I lived with my grandparents. And my grandmother always said, get, the edu- get that education. And my grandfather always said, speak, actually, he said, speak the king's English. Because when he was a kid, there actually was a king in England. And uh, so grammar was very important. So I guess I've, I really paid attention to that, which helped me speak to other people. Then when I moved with my dad and my stepmom, what I learned from my dad, and he really didn't realize he taught me this until we talked about it many, many years later, is he taught me how to make decisions because he would not make a decision for me. Whenever there was something important, he would make me think it through and make a decision, which obviously leaders need to do. When I was in elementary school, and you know, I really haven't thought about leadership in this way until you're asking these questions, so I appreciate it. Uh, But when I was in the third grade, my third grade teacher told us that over the coming summer, she was going to go to Africa. Now, I was a little little girl growing up in New Jersey, so Africa, I just couldn't imagine. I mean, it was so far away. And when she and I talked about that personally, because I was really motivated, one of these days I want to go to Africa, she said, well, set a goal and, and you can do it. And I still thought it was impossible way back then. But sure enough, when I became an adult and then a few years after I had started my consulting business, I still knew I wanted to go to Africa, had no idea how I was going to make it, didn't care which country I went to. But lo and behold, opportunities came to me. And I have now been to, I think, 12 different African countries, South Africa being the main one, and I go there quite often. So I think that goal setting that she had, that she instilled in me, certainly, you know, when you go through uh, a higher education, you have to be a self-starter and set goals and uh, and speak well and all of those things. So I think the combination of them all came together. I like there's so many great pieces here about um values that were instilled in you that at the time you didn't think of as values. Um, you know, speaking the king's English. My mother told me that I should uh talk like Johnny Carson <laughs> because <laughs> everybody understands Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the era that I was growing up, right? And so And it was true, like he had a way of speaking English that had everyone listening and tuning in and understanding him. And so that was, you know, sort of brought in. But um, but I I think this goal setting, this belief in yourself, I think the other thing a teacher was saying to you is like, believe in yourself. The fact that your dad gave you opportunities to make decisions, which a lot of young people even today aren't getting those opportunities to do. they can't even fail today because yes. a parent will swoop in to fix things. And 
I, it's hard when you're 30 and you're by yourself having to make it <laughs> for the first time. And you're like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. So these are all great values. And um, it seems like it, it set you up for success. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you're doing today, but I want to ask it in a, in a way that maybe you haven't asked, been asked before, which is what do you find most rewarding about the work you're doing today? Mm. Oh, my goodness. Well, as you know, my area of focus is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, these days, there's a major focus on unconscious bias or just bias, period. And what I find most rewarding is at the end of a keynote or at the end of a workshop or when I'm doing executive briefings and then someone comes over to me after that time and they say two things. One, they will, when they say, I just never really thought about these things until you presented them. I mean, because that's the whole point is to think of inclusion and getting along with people different than you and working with people different than you, thinking about it in a way you hadn't thought about it before. That is non-threatening and non-judgmental. And the the other um, comment that I most love to hear is, and usually this person will wait to last to talk to me, and they will say something along the lines of, I get it. What you were really talking about was the fact that we're all connected. So if we're not valuing each human being, we're hurting ourselves. And you really were talking about peace. And then the la- I was in London last week and doing working with two different clients. And I got a version of that at the end of both of those presentations. I thought, okay, something's finally, something's working that people are recognizing that globally, you know, in a, in a really broad sense, peace is the way. So when you bring that back to everyday work in a business environment, and, you know, some people will say, well, that sounds too lofty. But the fact of the matter is, if you can't be in a peaceful, meaning get along kind of relationship and more than tolerance. I mean, really valuing that other person. If you can't get to that point, then that means you don't have trust in the relationship. And when you don't have trust, you're not going to have much of anything else. And that's where I think all the, the um, sort of collisions occur as people are communicating with each other and everybody's walking around with a chip on their shoulder. So when they can, they can see that the underlying message is really about connectedness and peace. And here's some things that you can do day to day to have a more effective uh, interaction with others. That's what's most rewarding to me. Wow. That's really powerful. And I think this idea of helping people see that because then it becomes a business, business imperative to weave Um, your message into the everyday work. Because if people don't have that, let's, you know, everyone gets along. If they don't have trust, then that's going to impact their ability to work together, uh, to innovate, uh, to be responsive in a crisis, um, to ask for help. I mean, like, there's so many sort of negative ripples that will happen when that trust is broken and it's easier to maintain the trust and build it up again. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do we sort of build a community and a culture from the start? 
And um, one of the things I've noticed as I've worked with different groups, um, and I've founded a number of, of small groups that have grown, often the people who are initially part of a group are very homogeneous. Um, the reason they ever got together in the first place is because they're like each other and they have a need and they have a desire and they decide, oh, we should just do this thing. And then I, they kind of finally realize that maybe they need to bring some more people in uh, that maybe don't look like them or don't have the same education or don't have the same you know, shared history. And they intellectually understand that, but they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, you know, the, the dominant culture never gets examined because they're swimming in it. Mm-hmm. And the people who are brought in feel like fish out of water because no one ever actually makes space for them. Um, how, how do you work with a group that needs to interrupt that? And these these are well-intentioned people. I, these are the people that want to do this right. They like get it, but they get it in their head, not their heart. Yes. Yes. And that's what you described is totally my wheelhouse. That's what I do all the time, every day with my clients. Um, because organizations are recognizing that to be really successful, they must be diverse. They've got that part. I mean, we're all different anyway, so you don't have to do anything to be diverse. However, if they are, if they all look alike and think alike, you may need to do some different things in talent management and talent acquisition, that kind of thing, to, to get more ethnicity and gender and uh, sexual uh, orientation and all of that kind of thing. However, once you have that diverse team, that's not enough. And so what leaders are recognizing is, okay, we... We're getting, we're getting the message of attracting new and different talent. But once they arrive, what do we do? And what I always say to them is, well, we got it backwards. You first need to look at your culture and create a culture of inclusion and then bring people in who are different. Because if you do, if you bring them in first, then it's probably going to be a revolving door because to your point is they're, they're the outsiders and people are afraid to try to, to, to reach out and connect. And, and this happens at all levels. And most of the people with whom I work are well-intentioned. They bring me in because they want to have that inclusive culture. They are not the, the folks that have you know, broken laws and all of that kind of thing, for the most part. I mean, once in a while that happens. But most of them really want to create that inclusive culture all the way through the organization, because I work with CEOs and their teams, as well as first-line supervisors and individual contributors. So to answer your, your question, you know, how, how does that happen? Um, I do several things. One is to first ask the question, that's the elephant in the room. I will say, so tell me, why is it hard to talk about this stuff, diversity, inclusion, and bias? You know, wh- what comes up for you? And people will say things like, I don't want to be judged. I don't, I don't want to offend. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Uh, and some will say, I don't think it applies to me. You know, if they are of the dominant culture, whichever dominant culture that happens to be. And so then I lead them to see how all of those answers, and they have other answers, but they all kind of are connected. All of those answers come from our place of wanting to belong. All of us want to be to belong. All of us want to be part of that team. And so if we want to belong, we don't want to offend other people. We don't want to take the risk of saying the wrong thing. So what we do is we shut down. 
what we need to do is to put it on the table, to speak up instead of shutting down and get beyond that culture of silence. Because what happens is we speak up, but we only speak up with people who are just like us and complain usually when we need to have that conversation with the diverse team. So once people realize that, that we all want to belong and this whole issue around bias once I help people understand, wait a minute, we have to have bias to get through the day. All of us have bias. We tend to only think about those biases that lead to negative results. However, there are biases that give us good results. Like when I'm doing a full day workshop, delivering a full day workshop, I'm most likely going to wear a black top and black pants and then wear a colorful jacket. Well, that's my bias because I know wearing pants is a good thing in case I have to plug something in under the table. If it's black, then if something gets spilled on it, I won't be as upset because people probably won't see it. That's a bias. And so I point out to them, and we do this through discussion, that we all have biases. So get over the, the, the guilt trip. And if you have a bias that you know is connected to a stereotype, we all have those thoughts too. So it's okay. Now let's talk about what we can do about that. So beyond the business case of all the reasons why we need to have a more inclusive environment and, and how organizations, we now can prove organizations that are diverse at all levels, make more money and all that kind of thing. Then what I share with them is, is a, um, a mnemonic that I, I made up and it's just the word basic. And basic stands for, each letter of course stands for something different. So the B stands for be the other, meaning intentionally put yourself among people who are very different from you. And that's scary to most people. But on purpose, and I say, don't do it just at work. It's too easy because your workplace is probably going to be the most diverse place where you are. And uh, so go to places where you're the one who is different. And in the US, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is usually the most segregated time of the week. So if you happen to go to a place of worship, go someplace else. Go, if you're white, go to a black church. Uh, or if you're black, go to a white one. Or if you're Catholic, go to a Protestant. You know, so do something different. And the reason for doing that is because whatever stereotypes you have about that group will come to fore and you'll realize, oh, nothing bad happened. And it's just a stereotype. The broader point is you get to see people as individuals. And that's the, that's the critical piece. So be willing to be the other. The next is to ask for feedback. And along with feedback is the ideas, ask for feedback and ideas, meaning getting that diversity of thought. The feedback part though, is to connect with somebody that knows you well, that is around you reasonably often. This could be someone at work or it could be a, a social friend and ask them that say, tell them that you're working on XYZ bias whatever it is. We all have plenty of them. And so let's say that you have a bias about appearance and then ask that person to be your accountability partner and have them give you feedback when you say something about somebody's appearance. Now, you know, don't throw you under the bus, but our biases mostly are unconscious because we rely on them so much. So be willing to have someone give you feedback so you can become more aware and then the next time those thoughts come up, you'll realize, whoops, wait a minute, let me back up. Let me get to know the individual. I have a colleague 
in my life um, who doesn't work for my organization, but we do see each other regularly. And although he didn't ask for that particular feedback, what I have come to know is what works is when he says something about somebody's appearance, I usually, most of the time I won't respond. I mean, I'll give him eye contact, but I won't respond. And then he'll look at me and I say, well, it wasn't a question. However, isn't it courageous that that person would wear that? So you just look for something positive. Then the next, the S stands for suspend judgment because we all have judgment. That's what bias is. Just suspend it. Just kind of put it aside for a moment. Uh, And I believe you, as you know, Jessica Pettit, my colleague and dear friend, and she wrote a book called Good Enough Now. And one of the things I love about the book and also what she says is we all are going to make up stories about other people. We can't help it. We're going to make up stories. So when we make up those stories, triple space and leave wide margins. So that's suspend judgment. You're going to make up the story, but don't don't judge the person just yet. See what else you might need to find out to fill in. The I, <coughs> excuse me, the I stands for include others in your team, in your space, in your community. If you're going to have a dinner party, don't just invite the same people all the time. Invite some folks who are different. Now, don't just invite one person who's different because that might not turn out too well, but invite a few people who are different than who you normally have. And you'll discover, and your other guests will discover too, is you have a conversation with them just like you would anyone else. So it's not about being so afraid to say the wrong thing. You just, you have a conversation. And the last, the C stands for check your ego at the door. This is particularly important for leaders because the longer you have been in leadership, the higher up in the organization that you are, the more you believe what you think is right. And you are right a good deal of the time, but a lot of that is connected to ego. So you need to check your ego at the door so that you can hear other people's perspectives, so that you can be humble and recognize that maybe you're not always right. And that will enable you to be more comfortable around people different than you in whatever way they are different. My gosh, there is so much to unpack here, Lenora. (laughs) I hope people re-listen to this to take notes because you just dropped a ton of value right there. This acronym BASIC will help you remember it. Um, The piece you said a moment ago about don't just invite one person. Um, I had a friend doing um, D&I work a a decade ago. And one of the things she taught me was always invite in twos. So if you were going to diversify your board and you thought, well, we really should have more young people um, we have we've no one under the age of 50. We should invite some 20-year-olds. Don't invite one 20-year-old. <laughs> you know, right. Invite at least two so that they're not speaking for their generation. Um, don't invite one black person and make them speak. You know, One of the things white people never have to do is speak for their people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many of us around, so you've got to understand that there's a diversity of thought. So similarly, like bring in multiple people in. Um, including others. I mean, like this has been a through line of my work is this idea of inclusion. I mean, I speak a lot about body language at events and, you know, people standing in those tight clusters and then how do you open them up? So the tight clusters, I call that the bagels. And if someone opens up their body language, that's the croissant. 
which is why my my book is called Croissants versus Bagels. Um, <laughs> and and like you know, pe- look for those openings because some people are more naturally open. And I think similarly, there are bridge builders, right? There are people who are are willing to put themselves into these spaces with others who are not like them, who are are willing to whether it's code switch or go along to get along or just not as easily flustered or just, you know, put upon and just are willing to kind of be in relation with each other. And I think we need more white people doing that kind of bridge building in the, in the other directions. It often seems that, you know, a Muslim person is in our space. Are we also going to a Muslim? Are we going to a mosque, you know, and being in their space? And I think that willingness to bridge build, which is, should not be everyone's job, but the people who are willing to do it, it's a gift to those around them to be able to engage and learn. And I think it's those relationships that make it safe to then ask the stupid question, which, you know, <laughs> I often tell people that's why Google exists. <laughs> you don't <laughs> actually have to ask anybody a stupid question anymore. You could just open your phone and ask Google, Uncle Googly, what's the reason that this happened? You know, yeah. but people are just that instant curiosity um, sort of knee-jerk curiosity people have. I think people can hesitate on. I, I, you, you've developed a career doing this and you're incredibly well-known. You're also very giving. I mean, like I mentioned in, in passing in your introduction that you're the past president of the Global Speakers Federation, inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame. You're just, I met you through the National Speakers Association. Uh, you were the past president there as well. You just, you're, you've been giving back to your industry um, for years and people know you for that. When you were first starting out, did you have a clear sense that this was the work you were going to do? Like, or oh, did it get no. developed? Okay, yeah. No. <laughs> I was really hoping you were going to say no because I was like, oh my God, Lenora, did, were you 12 and you were like, I know what I want to do? Okay, well, in, in your 20s, like, you know, how did, where were you dabbling before you found your foot so firmly planted in this field that now, decades later, is a hot, place to be. I mean, you've got the credibility yeah. and the authority to speak. But when you were first getting started, like what were you trying out that that sort of now informs you? Well, quite honestly, I started out as a high school teach high school teacher. And then uh, t- having taught for two years when I got married, I moved from Virginia to Michigan to Ann Arbor. And my my husband was working at the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor School District was so strong that it was nearly impossible to get in. And I, I happened upon, um, I, don't, I don't believe in, in um, just coincidences, but as, as it would, my path would have it, I happened upon a position in the Graduate School of Business at Michigan. And that's when I discovered that adults like to learn. Because before that, I was in a public sector and I was teaching high school students. And eventually I realized, oh, I really like to be around adults who want to learn because I, I was in what is now their executive development program. I was, I was uh, managing some of the seminars. And so I was dealing with business people, not the academics. And so then that was when I realized I, I need to get a master's in adult education with an emphasis on business. So I knew I wanted to be something, wanted to be around having to do with seminars and workshops and that kind of thing. However, do, having done that, General Motors um, stole me away from that job, and um, and this was in the mid '70s. So this was a long time ago. 
and I was in my early 20s. So General Motors hires me to deliver management development programs to their dealership population. So here I was, Black, female, and young, teaching management principles to middle-aged, rich, white car dealership owners and managers. Little did I know that was my introduction to diversity. I had a wonderful time. I was such an enigma to them that I never had any problems with sexual harassment and so forth, because I think they, they had no idea how to deal with me, because in the 70s, having a professional Black woman teaching them something was unheard of, right? And so I realized that I love that. We followed my husband's career, so we moved around um, a reasonable amount, and I moved to a, another corporation eventually continued in training and development, then got tired of that and, and uh, really wanted to do more organization development work. So ultimately became director of HR for a division of a Fortune 100 company. And that really developed my deeper skills beyond just the classroom piece. I mean, really understanding how people operated in a, in a corporate environment. Then we moved again. So we moved to Phoenix and by then, I was thinking about starting my own consulting business, and I had colleagues who had started businesses. So I called them up and asked them, you know, what does this take? Knew nothing about the National Speakers Association, but fast forward quickly, I started my business. I was uh, delivering training and thought that was all that there was, not knowing that the headquarters for a National Speakers Association was literally three miles from my house. So one of the people who I had met through social events uh, was very active in NSA, um, Ed Scannell. He's also a past president. He kept talking me into joining NSA. And, and one of the challenges, as you know, that we struggle with, with it being called National Speakers Association, is people think it's only for keynote speakers, when in fact it's for anyone who uses the spoken word in some way professionally. So, so I joined NSA. I still wasn't clear about doing work in the space of diversity and inclusion and clearly had no expectation of being a, a president of it some, some day. So there's, those two things were totally out of, out of my focus. However, I, when I was delivering the training, I still was a generalist. I was doing lots of different management development training, leadership and um, coaching and hiring and firing, all that kind of thing. And my colleagues at NSA said, now that you're external, you need to specialize in something. So by now we're in the late 80s and diversity in a corporate environment came on the scene in 1988 in a big way, because that's when a report Workforce 2000 came up and it said that by the year 2000, most of the people joining the workforce will not be white men. So it's like, oh my goodness, we need to do some things different if we want to succeed. So lots of people kept saying, you should do diversity work, except they were telling me to do it because I was black and female. I'm like, that, that's not a good reason. And I didn't like what I saw other people doing at that time in that area because it was um, judgmental, blaming, and shaming. So I continued to do other things. However, back to that South Africa uh, piece where I was motivated by my third grade teacher um, I had the opportunity to go to South Africa for the first time 
1991, which was shortly after Mandela was freed from prison. And I went back several times. And every time I went, miracles would just happen. We just don't have time to go into all the things. But many things would happen to me personally that were just fantastic. And I also learned there, because of some of the things that happened, that I needed to do this work. Mm -hmm. When I, for example, when I went to Soweto for the first time, which was way before it, it had museums in it and all of that, when it really was, it's still bad now, but it was much worse back then. I realized, you know, but but for the sake of God, I could have been born there, could have been living as they were living. And I wanted to do something about that. So continually things happened. And uh, on one of those trips, when I came back to the U.S., I knew I needed to figure out how I could do work in this space with my voice, do it in a way that helped people know that we are all part of something bigger. And as you know, uh, the foundation of my work is uh, based on a Zulu principle, a proverb, Ubuntu, which means I am because we are, we are because I am. So that's when the journey started to learn more about it, to figure out what I could do uh, and um, just build on that. And as it relates to my leadership in, in the profession of speaking, uh, I just, I kept showing up. <laughs> I would, you know, I told you I'm a rule follower. So I, I would show up and I would, I would go to things and I would meet people and I would volunteer and I would keep volunteering because I believe that's the best way you get to know people and you get to learn more is through volunteering. And that ultimately led to being president of NSA and also president of the Global Speakers Federation, which were both fabulous experiences. Yeah. What, you know, and this really does bring us to the, the questions around relationships and, and networking, because in that story, I mean, you're illustrating in a really fabulous way, um, making social acquaintances with uh, someone in your, your town when you were living in Arizona uh, and, and their influence on you to join this national organization that you at first glance thought wasn't for you, but their encouragement um, the fact that you did keep showing up because, you know, it should, there, there are four steps to being an expert, show up, participate, lead, expert. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of us are doing at least the showing up part and many of us are doing the participation part. And like leadership is why volunteering and offering, um, you know, more, more value. And then suddenly people are like, hey, you, you know what you're doing. Can you show everyone else? And you're like, oh, wow. Okay. I guess I'm the one in charge now. So you know, that you, you had a commitment to a place. You didn't bounce around. I mean, there are people who dabble for two years in one association and two years, they try out a different club and they just, and I think by committing for years, and I actually, I joined um, NSA, National Speakers Association. For those who are wondering, we're the folks who speak. The other NSA are the folks who listen. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I joined in 2015. I left my day job at the end of 2014. And I'd already been speaking uh, sort of on the side for, for five or six years. And I said, you know what? What you do is you join your professional association. And I committed to going 10 years in a row to the event, to their annual conference, and then deciding whether it was worth it. Mm, wow. <laughs> because I think you get more out of it by committing 
And even though it's actually, a, it's actually a scheduled conflict this year against an annual event that I've gone to for 15 years, mm. I chose the conference. And I think, you know, this is what um, you get back is what you give in. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, yeah, so I mean, the fact that, that their coaching of you to, to be more specific and focused and, and more now we did say niche, um, specialized, you know, and the business side of it, I think that's the part that you were getting from this community, mm-hmm. right? It's like, there's the, you know, knowing how to do your craft and then there's the knowing how to do the business of your craft. And that's what you get by being around other people who do that work. So um, when you're thinking about your network today, I mean, because I imagine you, you more than most of my guests have a, a global, diverse, um, very interesting network um, and, and diverse in 16,000 different ways. Like I know that you don't think of diversity in any one aspect. It's very, you know, diverse, multi-sectored wise. So when you're thinking about not your closest connections, but the people who are like second and third degrees out, you might see them like annually at a conference or you worked with them 10 years ago, but you're not currently. How do you nurture and sustain those sort of more loose connections? The people that you're like, you know, they're they're on your LinkedIn, but you don't ever talk to them. Um, How do you think about, how do you think about that? Is there a habit or a practice or philosophy that you have? Well, you know, when, when I started the business, there was no internet. And uh, I remember when email first started, my goodness. And um, it, what I would do differently now that, uh, you know, starting out and, and the internet makes it so much easier is I would have stayed better connected earlier on so that I could stay connected to people who would be able to um, continue to give me advice and counsel as I grew my own career. Um, what I do now is I'm, I'm not the greatest at being, you know, some people are on LinkedIn every morning or, you know, some period of time uh, during the day and on Facebook. Now I am on, on those um, different sites. What I started doing a couple of years ago, as I would every now and then look at my, my contact database and I'd see some names, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I wonder, are they still there? And I wonder what they're doing now is I would, if they were in my, just my general database, I would see if I could find them on LinkedIn to see if they were still at the same company and whether they were or not, then I'd, I'd send a note to them. Now I am a, I am um, one of those folks that will write handwritten notes. And I think that's so important today because so few people do it. It's really a great way to stand out. But one of the things that I do to, to connect to that second and third tier, um, my first tier, I call them my diversity champions. They're, they're my go-to people. And then beyond that, I, I um, have a, I won't quite call it a habit because I don't do it as, as um, kind of religiously as I, as I would like to, but I really try to send somebody a note that I haven't connected with at least once a week, a different person at least once a week and something different than Twitter. Um, You know, if I can find their email address, then I'll do it that way. Uh, Or I'll drop a postcard, Uh, but do something. And what I'm, what I'm moving toward is to do that with one person each day. So in a week, in five days, 
reach out to folks. And the critical piece, I think, in doing that is not to do it to ask for anything, but simply, how are you doing? You know, hope everything is wonderful. Was thinking about you, you know, that kind of thing. It can be something um, really short. And I get joy in doing that, you know, and especially if I'm doing it via snail mail and it didn't come back, then I know I have the right, the right address. Um, I, I just, it, it um, enriches me, even if it may or may not have done anything to the other person, although most often they will reach out and, and uh, will reconnect. Yeah. I mean, the, the value of our, our networks, I think we, we undervalue. The, the value of our networks. Um, I, this is not based on any statistics, but it's my gut that 80% of the people that we need to know to be successful, we've already met. Yes, I would and, agree. You know, I work with women who are in their 50s and 60s who are making shifts in their businesses or going from career to being an entrepreneur. And sometimes the conversations I have initially with them, it sounds like they're starting from scratch, like they were just born. And they don't know anyone and they're a complete novice. And I'm like, what happens to the 30 years of history you have and all the people you worked with? And so some of the homework that I give them is to reach out to people that they worked with 5, 10, and 15 years ago that if you would be happy to hear from them, then let's assume the same reverse and shoot them a, hey, you know, how are you? Hey, let's catch up. Hey, you know, thought of you and making that into a habit and like good things sort of come from it and they end up being reminded of this vast network that they have right so that's that's a really important piece of it so um in in the final wrap-up i just want to ask you two questions one is if we were connecting a year from now and we were celebrating all of your successes what are we going to be celebrating what are you looking forward to in the year ahead oh my goodness what i'm celebrating is i just started a nonprofit organization and it became official September of last year. And this month, I will be having my first board meeting. And uh, so a year from now, what we will be celebrating is that we have all the foundational things in place. Um, the, the nonprofit is focused on helping people know how to talk to other people who are very different than them, than themselves. So, and I want to do that in a very grassroots kind of way in community. So uh, by a year from now, hopefully we will have had several pods go through this, uh, this program. Oh my gosh, that sounds so powerful and so needed. Um, all right, Lenora, how can people find you and follow your work? Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at LB, B as in boy, LBH Diversity. You can find me on LinkedIn by my name, Lenora Billings hyphen Harris. And if you'd like to send me a note, which I'm happy to receive, you can reach me at lenora at ubuntuglobal.com. That's great. We will have all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Lenora, thank you so much for joining us today. Has been a delight. Thank you, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lenora. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 147. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show. Have you been thinking about working with me? 
or you're not ready to commit to a six-month program, send me an email to ask about The More Fundamentals, a three-month program that gets you the information you need to take your business to the next level through relationship-based business strategies and access to the community that will support you. My email is Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. And if you enjoyed this episode with Lenora, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.